0: Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. As we study, by the way, in in this section of scripture today, Exodus five is basically the conversation with Pharaoh. And then Exodus six is then the conversation with God, both mediated for us through Moses. And so Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and in here they address him with let my people go. Pharaoh and by the way why why go? Well, and, and why would why wouldn't Pharaoh say, "Why not just do it there? Why do you have to go?" Because all realized that for a foreign people to worship a foreign god would be so repulsive to the Egyptians that it was critical Actually necessary for them to leave the land in order to worship their God with integrity, because of the effect that it would have would have had. Um, oh, am I, we off there as well. Okay, uh, be, because of, of 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 what a repulsive activity that would have been in the eyes of the Egyptians. So Pharaoh said. After hearing this charge, let my people go, God has said so. Pharaoh says, who is this Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Well, we have just set things up for a showdown, have we not? This is one of the great expressions of arrogance against God Almighty. And we are now setting up Pharaoh For all that's going to be coming his way. You will know this Lord. Oh, you will know him intimately. You will know him by name. And you will know him by deed. And it is all going to be coming your way. But it's a dangerous thing. To use the arrogant idea. I don't know God. Is God even knowable? It's such a vogue thing to say today, isn't it? I mean... It's so hip to be agnostic. It's so hip that it's hep. That's a 60s term. You probably wouldn't know. But it is. It's the in thing. To actually say that you know God and you believe him, you're looked at being some sort of a closed-minded, backwards thinker versus those who have this enlightened expansion of mind who are willing to say, I'm not sure if God is even knowable. It's not a favorite sentiment in the in the ears of God, as we can see right here. Then God said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, let us take a three day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Why, Why is Moses saying that? Is he just trying to say, hey, this is a really big deal. I think he's also trying to say, and by the way. We're your slave labor. We're, we're building these, these massive monuments. Not the pyramids, by the way. Some people, were they building the pyramids? They were not building the pyramids. The pyramids were not made with bricks without straw. The pyramids were made by carving out some of the most fantastically huge blocks of limestone further up the Nile and then floating them down the Nile to the area of Giza where they were then constructed. The pyramids were constructed about a thousand years before the Israelites arrived. So the pyramids are almost 5,000 years old. Uh, quite, quite ancient. Uh, but but again, they were constructed about a thousand years before the Israelites kind of came into play here in Egypt, just to kind of keep that straight. They were building other things, though. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their label labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave the, this order to the slave drivers and overseers. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out. Oh, let us go sacrifice to our God. Make them work harder for the, for the people so that they may keep working and pay no attention to lies. He's saying to them, fortify their work, uh, make their work heavier, make their work harder. That word, by the way, either to fortify, to to um, make heavy or to harden their labor is actually the same word to make heavy, to fortify or harden his heart. So there's a bit of a irony that is being laid out right here of what it is that he's trying to do. To God's people, as he's also bringing upon his own heart, as he makes their life heavy. Well, his heart is becoming heavy and hard as well. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Verse 11, go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are being bitten, uh, beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for each, for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting for them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. All right. Now, this is one gracious God that we've got right here. Patient. As all get out. Think of all that, that Moses has said so far in, in the lead up to this, the previous conversations with God is like, oh God, I can't do it. I, I, I'm not eloquent. I have a, a heavy mouth. I have faltering lips. Uh, please, please, God, this is not my thing. And God says to him, I made your mouth. Don't you think I can make this covenant with you? I'm the God who makes the mouth, who makes the eyes. I, I can bring all of this about. And 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 then <laughs> Moses hears all of this and gets reassurance from God. And the next thing that he says is, all right, God, I hear you. Send somebody else. Right? And God is still patient with him. And he says, all right, I'll do that. Maybe Maybe you'll have a bit more resilience and a, and a bit more boldness if you can go as a team. And so here, I'll give you, I'll give you Aaron, your brother. Maybe if you go together, then that'll be, and, and they do go together. But now, the very first time that he goes up against Pharaoh, and God had said to him, I am going to make Pharaoh's heart hard. He said that in chapter four, just before this. I'm going to make his heart hard. Why? So that the full deliverance of God could be known to you. I intend not to give some sort of a half measure that avails nothing for my people. I'm going to bring out the full deliverance for you from slavery into a great land. And in order for that to happen, we're going to have to vanquish an army that would come after you. It's all going to have to play itself out. If you trust me in this, it's going to be amazing. And, and know that for the first few times, Pharaoh's heart will be hard and he is not going to let your people go. Now, a lot of people, by the way, and this is a, an aside, you know, want to argue with God. Well, is that really fair of God to do that hard, heart-hardening thing to that nice king, Pharaoh? He's not a nice king, by the way. Uh, and, but the biggest issue is how? I mean, obviously God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did. 22 times out of the times that it says Pharaoh's heart was hard, 22 times it says that 11 of them say very directly, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So you can't take God out of this picture. God obviously was the actor, the agent, in bringing about this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But the question is, how did he do it? Because if he did it by just simply going into his heart and flipping the switch from soft to hard and doing it as theologians call Immediately. Now, this is a technical term. Teens aren't here, so I'm going to go for it for a minute. Alright? Except for you guys. But you know what? Apparently, God saw fit to bring the most intelligent, insightful teens. Except for you, those of you that are watching on Facebook as you drive to King's Menu right now, and that would include you as well. uh, Brought you all together. Because this theological debate has so captivated All of God's people for all of time. And it is the great debate between man's free will and the foreknowledge of God. And as God brings about his desired purposes, does he do so by messing, tinkering with man's free will? That's the great debate. And of course, it shows itself up in this episode big time. Because he says explicitly, God says, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that your deliverance will be all the more complete." And it's for a great purpose. So, is it so bad if God goes ahead and flips the switch immediately? Now, going back to that word, "immediately." Uh, immediately is a very technical word, and it doesn't mean right now, right? Like, immediately, drink that water. Oh, good job, right? But uh, but 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 what what it means is not immediately that's what immediately means not with mediation not through a middleman not through some sort of mediating stimulus that would bring it your way so if if, for example that i wanted to say that uh, that, that we, let, let's let's harden Brad's heart. Let's all you know kind of do that right now. Well, to do it immediately, we would have some sort of you know Spengali power to be able to jump inside of, of of his you know neural pathways and flip the switch, by, by, by which we would control his free will. That would be immediately. However, we could harden Brad's heart immediately, right? Immediately. Immediately means to do it through mediation through some other means, rather than having to directly reach inside his heart and flip the switch. That we could put the right stimulation, the right circumstances in his path that would harden his heart. So, for example, we could make Brad the King of Hampton. And suddenly he has all of that power and, and, and he has no one to answer to. And, and we can make him not just the, the the king of Hampton, but we can give him all of the riches that, that could ever be his. And then on top of that, uh, we, we could give him no accountability, no one to answer to. And then, you know, give him opportunities to kind of cut corners as he operates as king. All of those things, by the way, would be just right, not not for a a man such as Brad, but a lesser man, of course, uh, to to perhaps be the stimulus that would harden his heart. Uh, and, And it just might be that if some just, I mean, terrible circumstance in your life came your way, that circumstance would be a mediating circumstance that would harden your heart. It wouldn't do it immediately. It would do it immediately. Now, God, who in his infinite wisdom I think knows rather easily what are the stimuli, the mediating circumstances that he could put into Pharaoh's life that would help to harden his heart. It seems like Pharaoh is looking to make a name for himself here. He's going about a lot of building projects, a lot of civic projects. Uh, He wants to leave a legacy, perhaps, of, of what a great Pharaoh he is. Uh, there are about 200 pharaohs, and probably he wants to see where he stacks up uh, amongst all of the greatest pharaohs in the top 10 list that were being published at the time. Uh, perhaps he's trying to meet some deadlines before it's even his time to go. Maybe he wants his crypt to be even more grand than the other crypt. So all of these, uh, you know, urgency, intensity factors are there in Pharaoh's life. So God knows what to do is that he provides them with really effective slave labor, and then he pulls it away from him. And that's enough for him to be like, "Ah, oh, you're messing with my ambitions right now. This, this cannot go. You know, who is this God? What is going on? You know, see how easy it would be for God to harden Pharaoh's heart, knowing all of the pressures that he's under and knowing just what, uh, what, what, what to put in his life or even remove from his life so that that stimuli would then harden his heart or not harden his heart. So it's a very easy thing for God to harden Pharaoh's heart but not monkey around with his free will. It's a ironic phrase there. Uh, so keep that in mind. That was the next cursus. We were somewhere in this script, scripture. Um, what do you think? Let's go with um, chapter six, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. I am the God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. But by the way, he begins and finishes a very important speech here with, I am the Lord. Whenever you see this, know that there is a very important, complete thought that is being brought about in Hebrew literature in, in verse eight. God finishes everything that he says with, I am the Lord. See how it's bookend? And then what's interesting is, the next thing that he says is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, what's the second to last thing that he says? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and that pattern goes in all of the way that Hebrews give their speeches. When I kind of give a sermon, you're waiting for, you know, point three and God forbid point four or even five, uh, along the way. And they're like, okay, now I see where he's going. This thing's going to wrap on, wrap, wrap on up uh, along the way here. Um, there are four points today and <laughs> just to manage your expectations. They'll, they'll go though. You'll see. Uh, so, so we have a style of rhetoric that helps you to know where you are. Along the way so that, you know, that we're building to something that we're going to come to a conclusion that we're going to be kind of let out with an application. Right. That's our rhetoric. That's our style of oratory in Hebrew. The style of oratory is that what you say first, you also say last. And what you say second, you say second to last. What you say third, you say third to last. Go home. And if you want to get super nerdy, go from verses two to eight, and lay it out on a piece of paper and arrange them and see, wow, first and last, second and second and last, third and third and last. And you'll see that the thoughts pretty much... And then in the middle, after all of those things are bookend on either side, in the middle is a very important nugget. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, on we go. I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, the other time... (laughs) The only other time that God says, I am the Lord and and says it in in this way is at a very important time. And he says it to Abraham. And this is the first time that God says it. It's in it's in the covenant with Abraham where he says to him, I am the Lord in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is then followed with this statement by God. I think I've got it here. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age." And the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This was about 500 years ago from what we're reading here in Exodus. God's got his act together. He had this plan already laid out. He had every one of these details, even with Pharaoh, already orchestrated for the greatest glory of his people, knowing how great he loves them and how Intimately, he will work to deliver them. This is our God, our God, who wants us to know that he has got you. He hears you and he is going to orchestrate events for your deliverance. This is this is a beautiful. This is everything in the book of Exodus in, in one short paragraph. And it's already laid out 500 years earlier. Like stuff like this just makes me just amazed at how great our God is. And. Again, Moses seems to be surprised along the way, but yet he had told all of this to Moses, too. I had a time back in chapter four. So onward we go. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, but my name, the Lord, I did. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Wow, right? I mean, for a yearning people with no hope, bankrupt of any sort of deliverance that they could affect in and of themselves, to have God of creation intervene and say to them these very words. Now, in order for us to appreciate how valuable this intervention is, we've got to appreciate this, this very idea. I will free you. Now to hear, I will free you, of course, uh, has the idea that you are not free. And, and, and clearly, these are not a free people. And this chapter only highlights the real oppression of slavery. And this oppression of slavery is, is of course one that is very vivid for us to read here, but Exodus has always been in the New Testament and has always been from the perspective of Jesus as a very vivid illustration of what is done for us spiritually. Uh, for, For example, in Galatians 4, Paul writes, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. And that slavery is an oppressive slavery indeed. Bricks without straw, striking down the foreman of the workers, fulfilling your quota, no day of rest, work day after work day, only to have your workload increased by 50% again, to go search the land for straw, come on back, still make the same quota of bricks. The, the, the slavery is indeed a dark and helpless time. And for all of us that have been delivered by God, or for any here who have, have known the slavery of sin and have appreciated it, we can see the parallel. It's as vivid as could be, as you as you imagine, the exhaustion, the overwhelm of slavery. To be slaves to sin is really not so very different as Galatians four says here, as being slaves to these Egyptian uh, overlords and oppressors. The oppression of sin is a hard one indeed. And it does leave you at a place of thinking, is there any way out? Just as you think that you're making progress, only to realize, I'm not free at all. And I'm not sure where you're at. Perhaps that slavery is is a slavery to just being religious. It's one of the worst of all slaveries because it's so nuanced and deceitful. But, but also, uh, the shackles are so strong. And there, you never know, deliverance. You never know what it is to soar to be set free. To do things for the sake of Jesus. To have within you a fire that burns out of gratitude for having really been set free to know what it is to have no bounds for your service to God. Because in the slavery to religiosity, everything is done to just simply serve your your self-image as one who is religious. You go to church because that's the right thing to do before the Lord. You... Contribute to God and His work. Well, because you want God to be pleased with you. Everything you do is to jump through hoops of of pleasing a God and hoping that you gain a little bit of credit before this God. It's religion, but it's not the relationship that Jesus wants to establish with you. He wants you to be so overwhelmingly liberated That there is no thought of, well, if I do this, maybe he'll do that. None of that exists any longer. Now, the affirmation of who you are as his beloved child adopted, brought into him, given power by him, given hope by him, given certainty by him, so swells us with the excitement of true freedom that we are set free to run and to serve and to do it with confidence. We approach the throne of God with confidence. We approach those that need to know of God with confidence. We do so with more than confidence. We do it with urgency and compassion, knowing from which we have been delivered ourselves. Or even the slavery, maybe it's not to religiosity or the pride that goes with that, but but maybe it's just pride in general. Pride of, if anybody tries to tell you something that might actually be for your benefit, to help you to grow. Maybe they don't say it just right, but instead of being able to receive it in such a way that, oh, my goodness, this launches me into another chapter of my life where I'm able to actually be more effective for the sake of Christ or more effective as a father or a, or a, a husband. Instead, what happens is pride wells within us and where we want to instead receive any bit of feedback in a way that makes glory to God a reality. But instead, we want to argue our case. We want to show that, no, I don't think your your insight right there was on the mark. I think that all you're doing is just condemning me right now. You're judging me. No one can judge me but God alone. Right? I mean, all of that nasty pride. It sounds good on the outside. Why? Because in our pride, we want to look good and sound good on the outside. It's all, in our mind, somewhat curated to be as effective as possible. But at the end of the day, anyone... Who, who has really been set free, sees it and just is sad. Sad for me. Sad for you. When, when we're enslaved. Enslaved to the sin of pride. Or, my goodness. So so many other ways. Smoking. Thinking that, oh, maybe finally, finally I, I could be set free from smoking. You know, just as you're about to be set free, just as these Israelites were about to be set free, sometimes the pain is augmented. Yeah. Yeah. And even in something like smoking or any other kind of addictive uh, consumptions or behaviors, there is a a moment of even greater piercing pain. But that pain is really just the threshold. It is the threshold of deliverance on the other side. And, And God is bringing you to a sweet deliverance. If only we would embrace fully what it is to go through that threshold from slavery into deliverance. But that deliverance, by the way, is then to serve God. To not just do whatever it is that you want. Because the second thing that he says here, after he says, I will free you, is that he then says, and I will take you as my people. You see that there? I will free you. And then verse 7, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. This is covenant language at its highest. This is where if you're a slave, somebody that you feel has been on the trash heap of all of human existence, and suddenly the God of all heaven, you of all people, you who are the bottom of every caste system that has been established on earth, you who are the throwaways, you who have been oppressed, you who have no future, you who are just waiting to live out each of your days, To suddenly have the God of the universe intervene and say, yes, you, not the Egyptians, not any of the peoples around you, but yes, you slaves, you are the ones that I will make my holy people and I will be your God. Imagine hearing that from the perspective of a beaten down community. I hear you. I make you. I make you the most valuable people on earth. And when Jesus frees you, he not only frees you, but he frees you and brings you into community. First John 1.3 says that, that we have fellowship with one another and our collective fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. It would be, how bizarre would it be if God came to the Israelites at this moment and says, I will free you, and then each of you can make me your own personal God if you choose. Like, would that not be the most absurd thing to suddenly be injected into this text? But we inject it into our story. Why? Because of Western individualism. It is the air we breathe. We are fish swimming in a sea of individualism. And it's hard to tell a fish that he's in water. And it's hard to tell us that we are the most individualistic people ever to inhabit planet Earth anywhere, anytime. But we are. It invades everything that, we, in the way that we make sense of everything in our lives. And it even, unfortunately, undermines the full beauty of this covenant. This covenant that we have with God, brothers and sisters, we have been freed and brought together as a blessed people. We've got one another. We've got this amazing gift. Why are we forsaking it? Why do we try to go about our prayer life, our Bible study, our outreach, our sanctification, our discipleship? Why do we try to go about that in such individualistic fashion? The great blessing of God here. That Jesus brings us to make us the body of Christ. God makes Israel his covenantal people. It's not my, my own personal Jesus. Uh, imagine an Israelite singing that. Uh, imagine us singing that. Now, I like Johnny Cash and all, but Johnny, you had it wrong there. That, that this is our community because of Jesus. My goodness. Let this be a week where you celebrate what God has done for you in community every time you decide to celebrate. Thirdly, see, we're moving along. Thirdly, but not lastly, it's managing expectations. You shall know the Lord who liberates. After God says, I will take you as my own people, verse 7, and I will be your God. He says, and then you, everything else at this point was I, 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 from the perspective of El Shaddai, of Yahweh, of, of the great God of God's people. He says, I will free you. I will take you. I will be your God. And now he says, and you will know. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now, you will know. This is not you will have knowledge of God. Know in Hebrew is also the word in the King James where it says, and Adam knew Eve and she bore him a son. Well, was like, oh, finally I know about Eve. No, no, no. <laughs> this is the idea that you have come to an intimacy Not sexual intimacy, although it was in the case of Adam and Eve, but a general intimacy with someone else. And God is saying, you will not just have a working relationship with me, but you will have an intimacy that I really am a father to you, and you are sons and daughters to me. The the great blessing that we have in Christ, that that very relationship between God and Christ, now that we're in Christ, is the very relationship that we have with God. You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. But God wants you to know him, but know him as this God, this patient God, this God who says to Noah, all right, I, I get it, Noah. Maybe you're nervous before a burning bush. Uh, yeah, maybe you had a bad day before Pharaoh. <laughs> you couldn't be saying the worst things to me right now, Noah. If you could just really kind of step back and appreciate it. And it's a good thing that you're the most humble man on the face of the earth. Because later on, you're going to write all these things down. And then you're going to have the realization and say, well, now everybody else knows this as well. But nonetheless, but that this God, this God who is so tender with Moses and so caring of us. He hears your groaning. He has compassion on all of your oppressions he wants nothing less than to liberate you now that liberation may be intense and that liberation does mean that you can no longer be a slave to flattery no longer be a slave to the the pornographic corruptions that God has has built you for in, in real intimacy with relationships that are holy no longer a slave to your emotions and your outbursts and self-indulgence of anger or spewing of frustration. Now, he's going to deliver you from, from, from all of that. And you're going to know this God, a God who liberates, a God who unshackles, a God who allows you to have pep in your step as you celebrate every day that you are no longer slaves. But it's important to know he is a God who liberates because to know him is to know also who I was. You know, the the great summary of the gospel, as I've said it before. Here's the gospel message. That I am more weak and and imprisoned and repulsive than I ever wanted to consider. But at the same time, more free, more liberated, more honored, more significant than I ever dared imagine. That's because of the God that I know, the God who liberates me from who I was. And every time that we understand this God who liberates us, we also have to understand who we were. We were slaves. We are slaves to whatever has enslaved us. And we have been set free. Now, if you've not yet been set free, please, please, please do not let another day go by where you continue in this religiosity corruption of what real freedom could be, that you continue with pride clinging to your life and keeping you from growing at a trajectory that is really magnificent. And probably you don't even imagine the greatness that God has in store for you. But every time that you are able to get feedback that's going to allow you to grow and be great, pride instead chops it right out. If you don't know freedom from the the smallness of sexual indulgence, or freedom from even a a chemical reliance, if you don't know this freedom, oh my goodness, don't let your pride get in the way, please. You've got a God who wants to intervene, and He has put people in your path that can show you with, with the same tenderness, with the same effectiveness. The great life, the sweetness that is yours. And that is my last point is that. And with that, God says, I will bless you. Not only will I take you to be my people and I will be your God. And then you'll know that I am the Lord. But then he says in verse eight, and I will bring you to the land, the land I swore with uplifted hand to give. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to give you a land of milk and honey. I'm going to give you great and fortified cities that you did not build, but yet you will inhabit those very things. I will, will, will make your families thrive. I will make the work of your hands magnificent. These are all the great promises of God when we live in alignment with his great covenant for us. And that is not just for this age where God says, you know what, no matter what you give up to enter into this covenant, I'm going to give you a hundred times as much, Jesus tells us in Mark 10. But not only that, but in the age to come, you're going to really know the promised land. You will then see the face of God. You will then walk in perfect harmony with Jesus. You will know what it is to then be delivered from everything to the ultimate degree. This is the blessing that God wants you to live for. Not only is it realized in small and many ways now, as, as we do have so many wonderful blessings, more than we could have ever imagined in this community, in this freedom, in this deliverance, that we have, in this significance, in a purposefulness of my life. All of that is made clear for me and for all of us. Praise God. But even more so, what we have in the age to come. Remember this. This God found every one of us while we were wallowing in our fetters and chains. And He says to us, I will free you I will make you my very people. You will know me, know me, the God that liberates. And then on top of all of that, I'm just waiting to bless you again and again. This is the God that reveals himself to Moses and to the people here. This is the God that has the showdown with the evil tyrant Pharaoh and delivers his people from that. How much more so Jesus As he has his showdown with Satan. Satan who takes title over us. As we give ourselves over to him. Into slavery. Satan who has oppression over us. But instead Jesus triumphs over him. By the cross. Conquering any of the deed. That he might have. And instead claims us as our own. And gives us all of the blessings. That God has always destined for you. This is what awaits. Every one of us. And so. I don't know whether you've got faltering lips or not, but this story ends here, and this will be our final charge. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of the country. And (laughs) the story ends with yet again, Moses (laughs) saying this. And Moses said to the Lord, if your Israelites will not listen to me, Why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? You know, it's like one more thing to Moses. And by the way, I'm no good at this anyway, God. Well, as as a spoiler, God does use Moses. Even though again and again, he wants to even throw up before God. I don't think I've got this. You know what? We've been given so much, more than we know. And you may still have faltering lips as Moses did. But you know what? Even that God will use. You're actually more inspiring with your faltering lips than you would be without. You're more inspiring with your shyness or introversion than you are without. You are perhaps more effective because of those very things. When you show the deliverance that is in your life, when you share the deliverance that is in your life, and that you connect other people to this wonderful God, the God who saves, the God who gathers the God who delivers and the God who blesses as our final charge. Despite our faltering speech, go tell of God's deliverance for you and for one friend, one friend, pick one, pick one. Now write the name down. Who will it be? Share it with someone else. Do it as a team, enjoy life in community and enjoy knowing that the greatness and the deliverance of God will be realized not only in your life, but through your life as well. Amen. Oh, and also, uh, we we will break to fellowship, but there are bags in the back that if you're visiting with us today, we want you to grab a bag. We've got some great resources in there for you, even more resources in there uh, for you through our website that we can point you to. So please, enjoy that for us and enjoy our time of fellowship. Thank you.